keep within. And when they say, look here or look, there is Christ, go not forth, for Christ is within you. This is the Greek Bible study, session 22. We are reading the gospel according to Mark. We left off in chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 12. I believe we finished reading up through verse 27. Does that look correct? That's what I have. Are there any comments or questions about what we read last week? I was just wondering, we didn't talk about this, and I don't understand 27. What does it mean, God is not God of the dead, but of the living? That refers directly to the verse before, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is, I am, this is in the present tense, basically stating that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. Oh, okay. We're talking spiritually, are with God. They didn't die and that was it. So okay. he is a God, not of the dead, but of the living. Okay, because there are a number of different ways you could take that. Okay, thank you. Any other questions regarding what we read last time? Okay, uh, let's go on. The next section from verse 28 through 34. I should just say uh, to Cedric and Linda, well, after my reading, we discussed this. People ask questions, make comments. I'll have a Word document. I'll put down some of the interesting words that come up in the Greek. And so, you know, just feel free to join in. All right, I'll begin reading here. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. Henry, I think that what was recited there is what Jews call the Shema. Yes, Shema, yeah. Hear, O Israel. I'm not entirely sure, but I suspect that that is what's written in a little piece of scroll in a container of mezuzah on the doorpost of every home. If I'm not mistaken, it's from Deuteronomy. I don't yeah. have the citation. Oh, what, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 6, 4, I think. Okay. This is the one very unique thing about Judaism and the Mediterranean world, the Greco-Roman world of that time, is the monotheism of Judaism compared to the Greek and Roman panoply of so many different gods, all different kinds of gods, and Judaism was pretty unique. The other important thing is that God comes first. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and mind and strength. You shall have no false gods no other gods that you would pay attention to as to this first god this one god monotheistic religion just had absolutely one god the other very interesting thing here is that it says in verse 31 you shall love your neighbor as yourself 
I want to just look at that word in the Greek here. Uh, there are things I, I probably have said before, but I will keep saying them. I don't think repetition hurts. This is the word for neighbor or someone that is near. That's basically what it means. And I like to point out in English, this word neighbor actually has a very similar meaning if you break it up, because it actually is, consists of three parts, the ne and the the and or. The ne is near and the b is b, plus the suffix someone, the or. So it's someone who happens to be near. That's your neighbor. The basic understanding of this for a Jew at the time was that one's neighbor was one's fellow Israelite. So that's how it was ordinarily understood. But if we recall in the story about the Good Samaritan that Jesus gave that parable, what's happening is that he's including the neighbor to be anyone, including even those hated half-breed Samaritans that most Jews just would not associate with or anything because they consider them to be only half-Jewish and half-Hagan. But Jesus included neighbor for all of them, for everybody. The other word I want to talk about here is the word love. Agapal is the verb. Agape is the noun, and it means love. And so often you want to hear people say this is unconditional love. Well, that's true. But at this time, 2,000 years ago, what it really kind of referred to, from what I understand, is that it was the golden rule kind of love. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or do not do to others what you would not want others to do to you. Both ways, positive and negative. It's that kind of understanding, I should say, of love. What you would want an enemy to do to you is how you should treat your enemies. Love your enemies. Same verb. So think of that, or unconditional love. Agape is just the noun form of this. I should also mention that Greek has several words for love. I don't know if I've mentioned it before during these sessions. You probably know this word, eros. That's basically erotic love, sexual love. And then there's another word, Philia. Philia is the noun. And you probably have heard of the city of Philadelphia. City of love. Which is brotherly love. Well, Philia is that kind of love for friends. And then there's also Storge, which is love for one's family, for one's kids, that kind of affection. Our English word is very broad, very general. But you have these various words in Greek, storge, philia, eros, agape. They also, well, the verb here is phileo. So Greek is much more specific as to the type of love that's being talked about. We just have a very broad English word of love and then another word, like. Any questions on those? I do have a comment. David Fink here. I'm seeing something that never occurred to me before, and that is that... Jesus dodged the question a little bit, but much to our edification. He was asked to give a single answer. What is the most important commandment? Oh, right. Yes. But he didn't stop with the citation from Deuteronomy. He went on ahead to one from Leviticus. Mm -hmm. Now he says the second, but he doesn't stop with one. The second is about love for the neighbor. And the teacher of the law agreed with him and put them together. <laughs> uh, it is more important to obey these two commandments than to offer on the altar animals and other sacrifices to God. I find this is very instructive in terms of our ethics and our spirituality. 
that it is simply not enough to have a right relation with God unless it extends to our relation with the human community. It is not an either or, it is a bundle. <laughs> right. I actually, what you're saying is, I understand the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying there is clarifying more clearly what it means to love God, how yes. that comes out in action. Yeah. Just like when I was giving you the word neighbor, neighbor to a Jew might just mean one's fellow Israelite, but Jesus made it even clearer what one's real neighbor is, anyone that's well, in the particular case of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, right, right. he was really a good neighbor to uh, others. It's, it's sort of a clarification in two ways here, although not, not with the Good Samaritan. That's, of course, in Luke, not in Mark. Would the early friends have thought that because God is within each person, that by loving your neighbor, you are loving God because Christ is within? So you actually are literally loving God when you love your neighbor? Well, again, loving neighbor, treating them the way you would want to be treated. Yes, right. of course they understood that. Just given how friends were being very persecuted at the time, put into prisons and beaten and flogged and whipped and having their ears cut off for preaching and uh, all sorts of horrible things happening to them. Yet they never, ever responded in any violent way to what was being done to them. And they were actually showing what it really means to love God and therefore how one loves one's neighbor. But we also have to remember that it's not in our human strength that we can do this or that they did that. It's by responding in our hearts. It's Christ in us that, that teaches us that love. So it's not just a heady thing that we decide to do necessarily the Holy Spirit works it in us, and we respond, and we agree with him in that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Isn't that right? And I think that's where we tend to go wrong. We can learn all the laws and the theology in our heads and still not feel that response of God to his creation, the people he created. I agree. It's the same thing with overcoming addictions of any sort alcoholism, drugs, smoking. If it's a major problem, you really can't do it by yourself. You need to have, as they would say in Alcoholics Anonymous, your higher power, that is God, helping you because you're otherwise basically a slave to your addiction. You're a slave to this sin. You don't have any control over it. You need God's assistance daily to work with and overcome it. The one other thing I just wanted to point out here in verse 29 with the Shema, that the Lord is one. As you know, friends have never considered themselves to be Trinitarians in terms of the 4th century declaration in the Nicene Creed, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends have always believed in all three, but they've never put that in that formula. In some ways, I keep telling people that Quakers were pre-Trinitarian, there's nothing in early Christianity, in the Bible or elsewhere, that talk about this trinity. True, you just won't find it there anywhere as such. They're basically saying the same thing that Jesus is saying here and quoting Deuteronomy. The Lord is one. And that's very important. And that was, there's just one God. Unfortunately for so many, I think, Christians, they kind of look at God as being kind of like three gods. It are, they're kind of fuzzy about it. 
this was not a Jewish thing whatsoever, and Jews actually point out that Christians do this sort of thing. But of course, Quakers have not, and the other non-Trinitarian Christian denominations that likewise do not feel we need to have this kind of an academic formulation of defining God in a specific way. Yeah, the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. That's correct. Nowhere. And it doesn't occur anywhere until the middle of the second century in some writing of, I keep forgetting the bishop's name, but several generations later. And I think there were reasons why maybe they formulated it this way in the fourth century in the year 325 because of various heretical kinds of things happening. They had to really state how Jesus was divine and but again, you no longer have an experiential understanding of God here. This is much more something for the academic scholars of the time and how they wanted to formulate things. That's not how friends have ever understood it or early Christians. And as I said, you know, it seems like it's only as much smaller groups of Christian churches and denominations that are still not Trinitarian. I should also mention friends have not seen themselves as Unitarian either. If you look at books written in the 18th century, especially 19th century, there are a number of books written by friends opposing the beginnings of Unitarian Universalism, the Unitarian Church that started up then. So, you know, you cannot say that Quakers were Trinitarian, but they were not like Unitarians either. It's an interesting position we take, but as I say, we are kind of pre-Trinitarian in our theology. I can go on and say a lot more about this. So maybe I say one more thing. In the first epistle, first letter of John, there is one sentence, looks Trinitarian, but the interesting thing was it does not occur in any early Greek manuscript of the New Testament whatsoever. It looks like it was a much later interpolation. Someone inserted it in there. There are three that bear witness in heaven. Yes, that's in chapter 5, verse 7. In some of the Bibles, you might have this extra verse that says, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Well, that's not in any of the early manuscripts we have. It's only in much, much later, hundreds of years later, actually. That sounds very Trinitarian there, but it doesn't occur in any early manuscript. So it was perhaps put in by some Greek copyist at some point. You find that, that people will point to that verse to say, well, here it is. We have this very Trinitarian kind of wording here. Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. No. no. Henry, I don't, I don't have a King James in front of me, but the ones that I'm looking at, at verse 7, there are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. That's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it goes on. Before that, I'm sorry, you're looking at eight, right? The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. Well, this is seven. Excuse me, Henry, could you repeat which chapter and verse we're looking at? Okay, please? we're in First John chapter 5, the last chapter, mm -hmm. and verse 7. In some of the much later manuscripts and in the Latin translation, so you'll find this, I think, in the King James Version from the Latin, that verse 7 says, There are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So those words are added in there. Those were translated into the King James Version, but again, they're not in any of the original earlier Greek manuscripts from the first several centuries. That does not appear in any way in the RSV, and we can thank our Quaker forebear, Henry Cadbury, and the committee he chaired. 
I think almost all modern scholars understand that to be something that was inserted hundreds and hundreds of years later in the Greek, and then that got translated into the Latin, and then the Latin got translated into the King James. But it's taken out because it's pretty obvious that no early Greek manuscript has it. Mm -hmm. In my version, it, it says there are three witnesses that tell us about Jesus. So that is kind of separating God, isn't it? The next verse here. The spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree. That is in the original. But among early friends, among early Quakers, there'd be some of the people who were opposed to Quakers that would point to this one verse that actually really wasn't there in earlier versions. I'm just pointing that out in case someone brings that wow. up. Uh, okay, let me see. Where are we? Back in Mark. The word for Lord, does anyone remember? Kurios? And that basically means owner or master, including a slave master. But, and that's the word that ordinarily gets translated as Lord. I should say there are other words for Lord too. God the Father, I mean, the universe, time and space belong to him. He's the owner. He's the master. So God is Lord. There's that other word, Lord, Yahweh. We won't go in this direction right now, but I just wanted to mention that this is one of the words that gets most often translated as Lord, but it means owner or master. It has other meanings as well, as I've said. It's also a polite way of saying sir or mister. And even the word sir is related to the English word sire, S-I-R-E. You can see how all these things are intertwined. And even the word mister is a corruption of the word master. You're all going to become experts in Greek, I think. Anyway, I hope this is useful. Yes, thank you. And Jesus is addressed by this scribe as teacher. Of course, in the, word, the Hebrew word, Aramaic word for teacher is rabbi. Same word, just means teacher. He's calling him rabbi or teacher. And what he's saying here in verse 33 is very important. This scribe, and what is a scribe? He's kind of like a secretary, he's a kind of a lawyer, kind of hard to describe their function, kind of a, a lawyer, interpreter of the law of Moses, also kind of secretarial stuff, and so those are the scribes. In 33 at the end, where the scribe is repeating what Jesus just said, quoting Deuteronomy, and saying, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So loving God and loving one's neighbor is much more important than these rites and rituals that take place in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus realizes, yes, this guy's got it right. He knows exactly what true religion is about. And that's why he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. His consciousness, his conscience is in such a place that he's very close to that kingdom of God, that state of God, that childlike innocence and understanding of God that we are to be like children if we want to enter into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven, to that mind space of God. Of course, the people hearing this, they just had their minds blown away <laughs> by Jesus' response here. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. <laughs> But this is a very powerful little story here, and we can go by it and maybe miss how important it really is. Okay, let's go on and read the next section. I was wondering, David had mentioned that this is put in the mezuzah inside of Jewish homes. Both of these precepts or just the first one? Oh, I don't know. Because I'm wondering, like, is Jesus stating the most two important Jewish precepts already? 
So they already had it within their religion. It's just that he's pointing it out that it's already there in their religion. But they're not following it. That's right. Just, that's the problem. That's the same problem today. You can mouth all these things, but are you really actually living them and acting on them and doing them as well as saying them? I don't know, David, the second part, where is that from? Is that Leviticus? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, that's the quote at the bottom of my page. Yeah, Leviticus 19.18. Okay, I don't have that in my Bible in front of me. Shall we go on to the next section, verse 35 through 37? Mm -hmm. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. So if the Lord God said to my Lord, so think of that second Lord maybe as the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the, that if you recall, Christ is after the resurrection is at the right hand of God. Mm -hmm. And because of how Jesus lived his life, was obedient unto death, even the death on a cross, he was exalted above all others and was given the name, the essence, greater than all others, that he could be called Lord, just like God the Father is called Lord. So that's, I think, the understanding that's being understood here. And of course, as I just mentioned, the word for Lord means owner or master. And one would not call one's son Lord ever. I could not call a son Lord. It would only be someone greater than myself. And so it says, of course, in verse 37, and the large crowd was listening to him with delight. For whatever reason, the scribes were saying that whatever the argument was among them about the Messiah being the son of David, Jesus is kind of saying something even greater here. Perhaps the way the son was meant was like a descendant of David, but Jesus is saying something greater. He's not talking about genealogy. He's talking about a spiritual connection. Before we go into the next section, I want to remind you, and what we had just read about this greatest commandment, that this is one of the scribes that we were just talking about. But now we're going on to scribes in general, these lawyers. <laughs> As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. I guess lawyers have never had a good reputation. <laughs> Well, Jesus is very clearly in the tradition of the prophets here, being concerned about the widows and orphans and those who are cheated by the judges and the paid-off judges. <laughs> That's something that predictably gets under his skin. and he Unscrupulous attorneys. <laughs> You're just reminding me, David, in the story about the two disciples that meet with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Right. And Jesus meets up with them, and they don't recognize him somehow. He does not look like himself as he was. Mm -hmm. They're kind of very depressed and down, and he asks them why, and then they talk about Jesus and how they thought he was a great prophet. Mm -hmm. But his own leaders betrayed him to the Romans, and the Romans killed him. That was the impression they had that Jesus was a great prophet. 
just like the public at that time saw John the Baptist as a great prophet too. But Jesus was even more. And when we say prophet here, it is clearly different than predicting the future. <laughs> That's such Fourth an unfortunate word. I think I could spend the rest of my life just retranslating everything <laughs> from the New Testament. <clears throat> okay, prophet is the word prophetes, which means prophet, which basically means a spokesperson, a spokesman for God. And the word prophet just consists of three different parts. The PR means uh, for, and the PHE is a root that means speak, and the TAS is someone who speaks for God. It does not necessarily mean predict the future. A prophet can be someone who exhorts the people, maybe berates them for their bad behavior, but it's basically a person who just speaks for the Lord, a spokesperson. And when we talk about prophetic ministry, prophetic ministers, and that true ministry is prophetic, we're saying that basically a minister who's ministering is being used as a vessel, as an oracle, a mouthpiece for God, that the Holy Spirit should be the inspiration, the inspiration, in spirit, inspiration for the words that get spoken. There's an even more pointed aspect of this, which is the emphasis on social justice, uh, taking the side of the poor, being outraged at exploitation of the marginalized. This is identical to what Amos is talking about and, and some others that I uh, remember a little less specifically. The offense of seeing widows, orphans, poor people being exploited. Mm-hmm. The point I want to make, it's much more, really much more than just thinking of a prophet as someone who's predicting the future. That's only one particular possible function of a prophet. A prophet speaks for God, that God is speaking through that prophet. Maybe only at one moment, at one time, or perhaps a lot of the time. That's the true understanding of prophet and prophetic. I have a question, Henry. Sure, sure, Jack. The connection with Jesus as Lord, as Master, has persisted in Christendom to the present time much more than the word rabbi or teacher. Right. They both have Jewish connections, but why has one persisted and the other is Jesus as teacher, as rabbi? Why has that been reduced or left behind? You know, that's a very good question. Because it's very clear in the New Testament that Jesus is constantly being called rabbi or teacher. And even the word disciples, the Greek word means student. So you have Jesus as teacher and his students. And uh, why this particular kind of relationship is not seen or emphasized as much is an interesting question. Clearly, early friends and traditional friends have seen Jesus as the guide with a capital G, our inward guide, our internal guide, our divine heavenly guide to lead us. We're just trying to think if there's any other denomination that pays the same kind of attention to that, and I can't offhand. And yet, I think this is just something that was rediscovered by friends in terms of just focusing in on the light of Christ, the spirit of Christ being within us and being a guide with a capital G. This is very much um, with us in the present. I think of a number of people gathered today who I was with in Barnesville last fall when Ken Jacobson was teaching us about Jesus as the teacher. Mm -hmm. 
Didaskalos is the word for teacher. And if you speak British English, you would say master there. That's British English for teacher. But also, it's the equivalent of rabbi, rabbi. And of course, the word for, what's the word for disciple in Greek? Mathetes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at that word mathetes, the ending the T-E-S is the same as in the word prophet, prophetes. You know, someone who speaks for God. Mathetase, the math, the M-A-T-H here means learn, someone who is learning and otherwise a student. Or as it gets translated, we get it translated as disciple, but we lose that kind of sense because disciple comes from the Latin word uh, discipulus, which means student. It's unfortunate that we've lost these kinds of distinctions. If we always had a good translation and Jesus is always called teacher when the word is teacher and the disciples are called students when they are his students, we'd be much clearer about this. All right, let's go through this little section here, verses 41 to 44, and then we'll stop. B, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And I think he's making a very important point here, and that is that if you're a billionaire and you give a million dollars to some charity, It's not hurting you one bit to give a million dollars if you have a hundred million or a a billion, which is 10 times a hundred million. So what you give a million dollars, you won't even know it's gone. And yet here of this poor woman, a widow, and widows of course had very hard time in the society because if their husband died, it was very hard for them to survive without their other families helping them if if the rest of the family was able to. That's why Jesus is making a great point here about how she is really doing something much greater in God's eyes by just giving these two little coins compared to huge sums that they are giving as offerings in the alms box here in the treasury in the temple. Of course, at this point in social history, the billionaires don't even give large sums. Those were the good old days when Jesus was speaking. I mean, it's sad, but it seems like so many billionaires never have enough. They have to make another billion and another billion after that. It's an addiction, like all addictions, worshiping money. Anything else on that little section we've read? Um, Henry, uh, where is all of her money going? Is it going to the teachers of the law? Oh, this is happening right within the temple. I gather there was a a treasury there. I'm assuming that probably went to upkeep of the temple and to, I don't know if you could say salaries of priests and whatever, who the only thing they did was work in the temple. And of course you had the security police, the temple police, temple guards, and all that sort of thing. So that's probably where that money went to. I would think also, but I don't know if some of that probably also went to the impoverished, but I don't know if I don't know that. Actually, I did read a commentary saying that, I guess they don't know, but they just assume that there was this alms box right outside that treasury inside the temple. The treasury was probably a room within the temple. 
And of course, we just read earlier in that story about the uh, scribe whose answer really impressed Jesus that loving one's neighbor and loving God is so much more important than all the offerings and sacrifices of animals and, and grains and whatever else in the temple. So that's an impressive, I mean, this is what you did as a Jew. You offered all these physical things, and yet there's something greater about loving God and loving one's neighbor than doing all these religious rites. I think that's a good place to end today because chapter 13 is complex. <laughs> it's all very complex. But um, are there any uh, further questions, comments? Is there anything you would open up for us about the word treasury? Temple treasury. Oh, yeah. uh, let me see. What's that? Is I think it, I know is that it, word. It, what, what, the verse? What verse is it? 41. Uh, 41. I think I know what the word for treasury is, but let me check. Oh, no, I don't know this word. Gods of Fulakion. Never heard. No, I don't know it. No, I, I can't say anything else about that. We tend to think of it as an institution rather than a collection box. A treasury, well, I'm thinking of a room here, actually. This is a, you know, I think of it like a bank. <laughs> Let me look that word up. I, I'm not familiar with it. Gaza Fulakion. You protect the Gaza, whatever that is. And I'm just wondering if this was earmarked for a particular purpose. Maybe we're, we can only speculate, but whether this was for poor relief. I think Catholic churches may still have a poor box, or maybe it's Anglican. Yeah, arms. Yeah, arms. Okay, this is this word. Well, let me write it out for you so you have it. The word means a place for the storing of valuables, a treasure room, a treasury. In this sense, our sources of information on the Jerusalem temple speak of Gaza Fulakion in the plural. It can be taken in the sense in the treasury. In the sense, oh, hold on a second. The term may be used loosely of the area generally known as the treasury, which would have had the equivalent of a vault. Also, the meaning can be a contribution box or a, a receptacle. There were in the temple 13 such receptacles in the form of trumpets. Hmm. So it has two meanings then. One is the actual like a room or a vault, and the other is these little boxes. Yeah, that's possible here. Okay, anything else? I hope everyone is fine and hope to see everyone again next week. And I do want to remind you all that this is basically meant for conservative friends, these sessions, but it's open to everybody so that you can invite other people as well, whoever you think might be interested. I hope we didn't scare Linda away today. <laughs> so I'll see all of you next week then. Thank you, Henry. All right, great. Thank Thanks, you. Care. Good God to bless. see you, Linda. Good night, Linda. <laughs> Good night. Okay, well, thanks, everyone. Okay. Keep within. And when they say, look here or look, there is Christ. Go not forth, for Christ is within you. And those who try to draw your minds away from the teaching inside you are opposed to Christ. For the measures within 
and the light of God is within, and the pearl is within you, though hidden. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from George Fox's 19th Epistle in 1652. The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's work can be found at paulettemeyer.com.